Greenville, South Carolina has earned its ghosts. Legends haunting its history. The history haunting the community. The community's whispers haunting its future generations. Those ghosts appeared almost as soon as the city itself, under a bridge in the northern part of the county known as the Dark Corner. Little Gap Creek runs through a Gothic arch under this bridge, the Poinsett Bridge. The locals say, ghosts here come out at night. The guy told me a story like they were up there and you know, one of their friends said they got attacked by an animal in the woods and you know, these, these strange glowing lights. That is John Boynowski, a Greenville Renaissance man, former newspaper reporter, public relations company owner, history book author, and expert on local ghost stories. His favorite begins with Joel Poinsett, the bridge is Poinsett's namesake. Joel Poinsett was a Charlestonian who kind of became a patron of Greenville. And he kind of helped push us forward economically and, you know, bought things and, you know, invested in Greenville. You might know Poinsett from a plant you see around the holidays. Poinsett, the minister to Mexico in the early 1820s, took a trip south of the border. He went over there and he found this red leafy plant, brought it back and he called it the Poinsett. Poinsettia plant that everyone uses at Christmas is named after him. You know? But if you ask someone in Greenville, they say he invented it. No, no, no. He just found it walking around Mexico and just brought it back with him. Because he was not some, you know, a horticulturist, you know, sitting in a barn, you know, developing plants. He just found it and named it after himself. Around that same time, Poinsett led the construction of one of the first paved roads. And to get that road over Little Gap Creek, what is now the oldest bridge in South Carolina. So that bridge is allegedly haunted, not by Joel. You know, you don't go up there and get like you know, mysterious, you know, flowers put on you. But they say that that the men who built the bridge, several died during the construction. And so their ghosts haunt that area. Some people say the ghosts are Chinese construction workers. Other people say the bridge disrupted a Native American burial ground. Whoever or whatever haunts the bridge, the man who made it happen is a Greenville legend. A statue of him sits in front of the Greenville City Hall, a kinder tribute than the Mexican lizard that also carries his name. One Greenville family has ghost stories that aren't so apocryphal. Two stories still haunt the people who survived Frank and Rufus Looper. We discovered the stories together. Two shootings at the Looper homes just weeks before the notorious 1975 double murder at Looper's garage. In the last episode of Murder, Etc., I talked to Frank's cousin and aunt, Adele and Julia McCauley, about the shooting at Frank's West Greenville house, and it quickly reminded them of this. Didn't that happen at Daddy's house? It happened at Granddaddy's house, too. My Daddy's house. Because when I lived in the house, people would go, what's that? I said, it's a bullet hole. It was right before he was killed. But you remember that happened? You remember your daddy telling you about that? Yeah, I, I, when I, I mean, I I've been the out house, there, I saw I, it. Every time I'd go in the house, it'd be like, there's that bullet hole. They remembered that, but they didn't know this. Back in the 1970s, there were people in town who weren't shy about firing warning shots. People who were closer than the Loopers knew. The day Frank Looper died, three men sat in the R&R Tavern, not far from the Looper garage, drinking a beer and making a plan. One of them was a man named Raymond Hassey. Everybody called him Bugs. Frank Walker was the second man at the table. A few weeks before Walker sat down for beers, he'd been a sheriff's deputy who once worked with Frank Looper. Walker left the sheriff's office in December. 
This is one-time prosecutor Billy Wilkins. Frank Walker was in another circumstance would have been a good law enforcement officer. He was smart. He had a pretty good heart and it just this climate, it's so, I mean, it was lawlessness and if you were a cop, you didn't mind, you crossed the line. If you wanted to, nothing's gonna happen to you. Wilkins came to know a lot about Walker in the coming year. He learned even more about the third man at the table, a lanky, cold-eyed Charlestonian named Raymond Small, known universally as country. Back to country, which is an interesting story. And he was probably one of the most dangerous persons I've ever met in my life. He was a killer. These others would kill, but he was a killer. The story you're about to hear is one I found in an old and forgotten statement Frank Walker signed in 1975. Wilkins, one of the most respected legal professionals in South Carolina, backed it up. On February 1st, 1975, Walker, Bugs, and Country were out drinking and ended the night on a paid mission. They hopped in a yellow 74 Charger. Hassey drove through the night, through Greenville's San Susi community, and onto Highway 253. That is when Bugs said, get your guns ready. They pulled up to a little house. Country pulled out a sawed-off shotgun. Walker pulled out a 380. They blasted holes in the house. They did the same to a nearby car and then sped off. Walker called it snatching out the man's windows and scaring him up. They did it, Walker said, because the man in that little house had been causing some trouble for someone else Bugs knew. Three miles up Highway 253 is Altamont Road. It leads up a 2,000 foot high rise called Paris Mountain. My kid was, was studying in school and he, he, he gave me the actual geo name. It, it is a mountain that stands alone outside of other mountain ranges, whatever that oh. scientific term is. It's officially a Monadnack, named for Richard Paris, a man who married a Cherokee woman, ended up with some Cherokee land, and then got run off to the Bahamas. Paris left, but his name stayed on the mountain where Andy Etheridge and I went riding around in his pickup. Andy moved on to the mountain not too long ago. You have these super nice homes. You have some regular homes, and you, but everywhere you see no trespassing signs. And there's this sense of the people that move onto this mountain, they're not here for like a sense of community. <laughs> there's walls, there's gates, there's do not come any further signs. So you haven't really got to know your neighbors then? Nah, they, there's, a, there's a wall around their house. They're really nice people and they wave. And I, I think my wife might have met them. We're here for a different reason too. I walk across your grass or should I come around? All right. That night, we saw a woman picking beer cans out of the ditch, cleaning up after some litter bugs who had trashed the spot in front of an expensive landscape lawn. A man killed and dumped right down here at the end of your road. We told Thelma Husky and her husband Bill that we were and what was a strange conversation for them at twilight, investigating a murder. We moved up here in 1968, I believe it was. It's an old murder, one that happened about seven years after the Huskies moved in. We were the only people around here. Yeah, it's sort of grown up around us. Yeah. <laughs> it was real private when we first moved up here. There was no houses here and no one over here. We were the only ones right here. Well, Bryce lived on up on Oh, Woodhaven. Those little boys were devilish. <laughs> While we were building, they came down here and ramsacked the place and all, did all kinds of things. So. The Huskies remembered the quieter times with some fondness, despite being either reluctant or unable to remember the mountain's bloody history. 
or its ghosts. The bruised black man who was said to have drowned in a few inches of water back in the days of bootleg liquor. The bloody murder of a notorious organized crime figure in 1978. And more recently, the man shot dead by the founder of a popular clothing company in 2016 in what turned out to be a controversial Castle Doctrine case, one made even more infamous by the fact the homeowner's house actually looked just like a small castle, one that the victim reportedly had just wanted to see. Everyone hears of the castle on Paris Mountain, the castle on Paris Mountain, but you, you can't view it from anywhere. And so there's a great deal of intrigue about where is this castle? I mean, when I was a kid, I was all, where is this castle? Where is this castle? <laughs> the Huskies, standing not too far from their koi pond, remembered their life here as peaceful and secluded. It's always been so private. I said to my neighbor the other day, I said, we used to just come out in our pajamas to the mailbox and anything, you know, and never think anything about it because now people are zooming up and down the road all the time. You can't very well do that. 44 years ago, about the time the Huskies would have been going to bed for the night, just around a dark curve from their house, someone steered a car onto Audubon Road and stopped next to a steep embankment just long enough to dump a body. Andy and I put some miles on his truck, looking for the exact spot, burning as much gallows humor as we did gasoline. So either of those, power line right away or somewhere in here. And this to me, if I was to dispose of a body, is where I would stop, <laughs> I guess is what led me to that line of thinking. For two men so focused on the Looper murders, this spot miles away would seem an odd location for us to be spending our time. Unless you remember an interview I'd done more than a decade earlier with an anonymous source who told me he didn't believe Charles Wakefield Jr., the man who went to death row for the murders, was guilty because he had met a man in prison who claimed credit for the Looper's deaths. We were sitting there and he was geeked up on crank you know, it would make your mouth run. And he was sitting there and I just said, they brought Wakefield in from CCI over here. And he just looked at me and said, hey, that didn't kill that cop, I did. That man he said he'd talked to was Raymond Country Small. I met Country on the streets a couple of times. You know, he didn't, he was loud mouth, he was real loud. And, uh, but then when he came, they brought him down at Kirkland. He was just like, I got 105 years, I don't care. And he got with a couple more boys down there and they formed this little group and they were kind of like, you know, the bad boys in the penitentiary. So that's how I got to know him. I had no way of verifying what this guy had to tell me, but it got me looking at country, Bugs and Frank Walker. Something that Andy, I'd one day learn, was thinking about himself as he worked the case over in his head. Those years of wandering led us to Paris Mountain. It never ceases to amaze me how big Paris Mountain is when you're trying to drive it, as opposed to what it looks like. It's a long, skinny mountain. It's, <laughs> if you look at it, you get to the top in a hurry because it's not that tall. But then it's a long time before you get to the other end where it's time to get down. It's like a sawhorse. In February of 1975, a doctor was out walking his dog down that long, skinny mountain, and the dog found Bugs Hassey's body lying cold in a ditch. The story of exactly why he came to lie there is one you'll hear someday soon, but for now, the how of it goes like this. 
Just a little more than three weeks after they drank some beers and shot up a house, Country Small, Bugs Hassey, and Frank Walker were casing a house they planned to rob. They pulled down a dark road. Country was in the driver's seat with Bugs beside him and Walker in the back. Country reached into the back floorboard and grabbed his sawed-off shotgun. Country pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and just jams it in Hassey's ribs and pulls the trigger. Frank Walker's got a 22 shooting him in the back of the head because there's blood everywhere. Country and Walker had set Bugs up and according to Frank Walker, they'd done it for Ballard George, owner of an alignment shop. Larry Smith grew up in West Greenville and knew Ballard George's reputation. People thought of him as, as, as a little crazy because you didn't want to cross him because he, he had a reputation being crazy that he would kill you or have you killed. So yeah, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember that. But you know, anytime that I was around him, anytime we'd come across, he was likable. He was always kind of laughing and cutting up, just acting crazy. I guess that's the reason people said he was crazy. Don't mess with him, I don't know. And according to the story Frank Walker told, when George sent them to shoot up a rival's home, that rival was George's own brother. Now, Frank Walker and Country Small were in the middle of a job they'd planned with Ballard George, one that hadn't accounted for the moment Bugs Hassey started bleeding out in their front seat. Prosecutor Billy Wilkins played a big role in the case. He picks up the story. And they don't know what to do. They're afraid to ride around with all this blood because of the, if he gets stopped for any reason, it's obvious. So Walker suggested they head for Paris Mountain, a long skinny mountain, still big enough for a few more ghosts. They dumped Hassie's body and drove over the top of the mountain, a winding collection of switchbacks and blind curves that can seem to never end. Andy and I retraced the route in his pickup. I've been trying to imagine the, uh, the idea of being covered in blood and trying to get away fast, and this is the route that you take. I don't think they realized what they were doing. I think they just didn't want to retrace their step. Well, and part of it is you think that you don't realize how far you've gone up the mountain by going up Audubon, so you're kind of committed now. You're climbing the mountain. The killers made their way to the other side of the mountain, and they realized their car, their clothes, everything they had were all too bloody to start driving under streetlights. So they call Bala George. He comes up and gets them and hauls the car back as if it's a disabled vehicle and he's got a record service. Hauls it back to his place on see later on and they burn their clothes, clean the car up and all that stuff. Ballard George, known to the public as the best alignment man in West Greenville, served as the cleaner, a southern grease-stained stand-in for Pulp Fiction's Mr. Wolf. George made sure the contract killers got away clean, and Bugs Hassey became just another Greenville ghost. The Hassey murder remained unsolved for most of 1975, but the very next day, the Greenville News headline was calling it what it seemed to be, a gangland slaying. The paper called Hassey a member of the Dixie Mafia, a loose-knit group of Southern criminals with a past and future known for contract killings. The phrase Dixie Mafia is, in itself, a controversial one. Over time, criminals and lawmen have alternated between promoting the Dixie Mafia as a real outfit and completely denying its existence. This is author Dr. Max Corson, who wrote a book on one of the most famous members of the so-called Dixie Mafia, Foster Sellers. Foster claimed that there was no such thing as the Dixie Mafia. He said that it was invented by the 
Federal Bureau of Investigation as a publicity stunt. But what Foster called his friends were good old boys. The good old boys did this and the good old boys did that, and a sizable number of them either lived in or operated from or came occasionally to Greenville, South Carolina. The point being, call it the Dixie Mafia, call it the good old boys, call it whatever you want. Something existed, and it was transforming Greenville into a city even wilder and worse than it already was. Meanwhile, despite Frank Looper's boss, Sheriff Cash Williams, saying he believed the Looper murders were the result of Lieutenant Looper's narcotics work, the Greenville police were actively denying a Dixie Mafia hitman killed the Loopers. And the police were creating a few ghosts of their own, ghosts that would haunt this case in a completely different way. So that's where they'll be looking from. May Mashburn lives here at 18. Viola lives at 16. And she was on the front porch. They were both. They were both sitting on their front porch talking. They were never called. On another night, Andy and I went out again. This time in West Greenville, right across from where the Looper Garage used to sit on Pendleton Street. Imagine so. If our trucks aren't here, and let's just scoot over a little bit, I guess. We were looking from the vantage point of two women who told police and reporters they saw a black man run out of the Looper Garage right after the shootings. Whoever ran out would have come out just about the other side of your truck and run down this way. Those women were Edna Mae Mashburn and Viola Owens, a couple of neighbors enjoying a 79 degree January day. Both of them passed away years ago, but on the day of the murders, they told the police what they had seen. So did a couple of men nearby. I asked some friends of mine to read through the old police statements. Today about 2 p.m., I was sitting on my neighbor's front porch. Mashburn and Owens looked through a vacant lot at the Looper garage. I saw a colored male running up Pendleton Street toward the old ice house. They knew something was wrong. I told Viola, let's go up there and see what was going on and to see about Vera. I was coming out of Mason Street onto Pendleton Street at the stop sign when I saw a black male running up the street from the direction of Looper Garage on the same side. Ed Gray was sitting even closer, idling at the corner in his car essentially across the street. I cut through where an old house had been torn down. I went in the garage and heard Vera screaming. Vera was standing over the looper boy. The black male turned up between the old ice plant and an old service station. Ed Gray sat in his car watching. Mashburn and Owens were already in the garage with Vera Looper and two dying men. I saw that he was bleeding from the head. I noticed a gun laying beside him on the floor. When I got on Pendleton Street, headed toward town, I saw him again. He was getting close to halfway through the open area behind the building. As the killer ran and the men bled out on the garage floor, the first eyewitnesses stood with police and gave them their memories from just minutes earlier. In a minute, I saw Mr. Looper lying in the garage. Some guy came in the garage and called an ambulance. I was screaming for help. I went and paid some bills. About 45 minutes had passed when I got back to the area and found out what was going on. Meanwhile, right over here at Pendleton and Mason was a guy named Robert Joe Benefield. Joe Benefield told police he was there too and gave much the same account as Gray. Mashburn, and Owens. How long before the first units arrived on the scene, you know? The first units took a while. In fact, near as I could tell, Owens and Mashburn were the first ones up here. And then a guy that worked for the Greenville water system drives by in his truck, and he's got a CB in it. He hears all the screaming, 
but doesn't stop initially. And then it's like, eh, maybe I should stop. And goes back and he pulls up and radios in that you know they need an ambulance here. Police interviewed Owens and Mashburn as eyewitnesses before anyone else. While it was still fresh in their minds, they saw the man running away, barely 40 yards between them. They were there before anybody else as the loopers started to die. Ed Gray was about 20 yards away in his car. Joe Benefield said he was there too. Police interviewed them all. The newspaper interviewed some of them too. The police came back days later and interviewed them again. Other than Vera Looper, they were the only eyewitnesses police found in the first 48 hours after the murders. Their descriptions of the man running away resulted in the two composite sketches police produced, the ones that resulted in multiple arrests, interrogations, polygraph exams, and truth serum tests. Yes, truth serum tests. If it's hard to accept a truth serum test happened on the way to a death penalty conviction, consider this. None of those four eyewitnesses ever testified in front of a jury. Not one of them. The case that sent a man to death row completely ignored every one of these people and focused solely on witnesses who appeared eight months later. Mashburn, Owens, Gray, and Benefield were, as far as any judge or jury was concerned, ghosts, invisible in every legal way forever. Hal Looper was killed, shot behind the left ear, about an inch from the earlobe. That right there, the placement of that placement of the bullets and all, and them to say it was a robbery murder case does not add up at all. That is Lynn West, one of the many people in Greenville who have shaken their heads over the years at the assertion that the Loopers died in a violent robbery. West worked for the public defender's office. For decades, he privately wrestled with the facts of the case, but only recently spoke publicly about it. In the first months after the crime, West knew nothing of the autopsy reports or what police and doctors found when ambulances left the two Looper men at the hospital. He was just a guy working at the public defender's office, unlike Tom Donahue, resident agent of the FBI, who took an immediate interest. I interviewed him recently as he was recovering from throat surgery. It affected his speaking voice, but he spoke firmly about the day he showed up to offer the FBI's assistance in the case. The problem was Looper. He was an honest, straight guy. I can remember the day of the murder. I went over there. They didn't want any help at all. They turned his thumbs down. Why do you think that was? I think they knew who did it. I think they knew damn well who set it up, or some of them did. They didn't want anybody coming in, you know, to look at the truth. Donahue worked with the FBI in Greenville for two decades on some of the biggest cases this city has ever seen. He was instrumental in bringing down a bank robbery gang that he'll tell you lots more about in the coming weeks. But as for Looper, he says the Greenville police wouldn't let him anywhere near the crime scene on the day of the murders. Wouldn't even let him see the crime scene photos. Without me even asking about those entry wounds just behind the left ear, the dry-witted FBI agent waxed sarcastic about that alleged armed robber's shooting skills. They shoot him and the father. My goodness, what two lucky shots. How, how lucky the shooter was. What an inaccurate shooter to get close to Looper without knowing him. On the morning of February 1st, 1975, the doctors in room 2981 of the Greenville Hospital ICU stood helpless over Frank Looper. Blood oozed through a bandage, one hiding a single bullet hole over his left ear. At that very moment in a nearby room, pathologist Don Kilgore stood over the dead body of Looper's father, taking a stoic inventory. 16 hours cold, 
five foot seven, 160 pounds, clogged arteries, a little bit of alcohol in his blood, left eye swollen shut and bruised purple, and a hole just above his left ear. The hole marked the beginning of a path to a mushroom-shaped bullet, one that had ricocheted around his skull, pounding and vibrating until Rufus Looper's brainstem bled out and killed him. As Dr. Kilgore signed the autopsy report, Frank Looper died in room 2981. Looper, 5'7", 140 pounds, at age 34, healthy in every way, until a small caliber bullet blasted bits of his skull into his brain, tore through the occipital lobes, and fell into a small hollow at the base of Looper's skull. Both Looper men were dead just three hours after sunrise on the first day of February. As doctors concerned themselves with the cold facts of how the Loopers died, everyone else began a 44-year discussion of why. This was the entrance wound right here. It, it seems like that would not be a coincidence that both victims would have entry wounds at the, the same spot in the head. That voice is attorney Eric Gottlieb from some video he shot more than a decade ago as he looked through the autopsy photos. A petty crime is where you just shoot somebody. If you're going to rob them and they come in at you, you shoot them and you run. You don't sit there and execute somebody. And that is Lynn West, who for the past four decades has struggled with a story you've still not heard and who has not let go of what he thinks those two headshots meant. Putting a bullet behind the ear in the head is an execution-style thing. And to me, it was meant to send a message to somebody sheriff's office or who was ever next up to take over narcotics was to send a message to them that you don't monkey with us. The headshots and the whispers echoed like howls in the night for years, repeating the same refrain on the streets. And they said, ain't no way that, that boy did it. In the Looper family. And my first thought, somebody has killed him in connection with his work as a narcotics officer. In the courthouse. Whitefield never killed Looper. Contract killing by somebody who offered the contract. Don't know why the contract was offered. You can only say it had to be about somebody who was getting too close to somebody when it dealt with drugs period, because it all dealt with drugs. It didn't deal with anything else, because drugs at the time were the main source of income for a lot of people who had reputations they didn't want anybody to know about. If that was true, why? Why Looper? In the year before the murders, Looper's crew made more than 250 drug busts. What changed in 1975? Part of it was that no one had ever done what Looper was doing, and the other part of it was what Andy and I kept mulling over as we rode over Paris Mountain. That was yeah, such a weird time back then because that was around the same time that the feds really started concentrating on drug interdiction. You know, when, when you speak about narcotics, you know, it's a taboo subject to a certain extent, but the type of narcotic always interests me. If you have cocaine or marijuana, it's maybe marijuana is being grown locally, but that's still small time. It's a step up from bootlegging. But if you're breaking into drugstores and stealing barbiturates, and reselling them on the local level, that creates a much larger opportunity for corruption. People weren't worried about the, the pills. To me, that was where the, uh, the real opportunity was for some serious corruption. The Poinsett Bridge sits in the so-called dark corner of upstate South Carolina, a mountainous enclave infamous for its years as a lawless bootlegging hideaway. 
I drove my truck up there not too long ago, thinking about Looper and all the ghosts his story stirs up. The ghosts on the bridge, or the ripples of water underneath that serve as their voices, don't have names. Unlike a man who fought the bootleggers in the 1920s, Greenville County Sheriff Sam Willis. One night in 1927, he stood in the doorway of his home's garage, and then an assassin killed him. Willis's wife said she saw a black man running away from the scene. Years passed before a new sheriff found that assassin, one who told them he had fired the shots and gotten paid for it by one of Willis's fellow lawmen. Like the ghost bridge that spans Little Gap Creek, there's an apparently timeless story that spans the decades between the assassination of a 1927 sheriff and a 1975 drug cop. If you read back through all the court files, newspaper clips, and confessions, you'll find this about Bugs Hassey. Before he was a ghost, he was a thief. And the last job he pulled was a botched break-in at a Greenville County pharmacy, a place where a man might be able to steal a lot of pills. There were two men with Hassey on the job that night, and one of them wore a badge. Special thanks to Megan and Brandon Saltmarsh for offering their voices to speak for the eyewitnesses who couldn't speak for themselves. If you'd like to see pictures of Frank Walker, Country Small, Bugs Hassey, and Ballard George, we've got them all on our website. We also have more details about what happened that night Hassey ended up on Paris Mountain the witness statements you heard here, and more. To see them, just go to murderetcpodcast.com. That's murderetcpodcast.com. We're going to be adding a lot more on that website in the coming weeks that will help you help us investigate this case. In the meantime, we need all the help we can get from you to keep this investigation and this podcast going. Your subscriptions on Apple Podcasts, your ratings and reviews, and all the sharing you can manage on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, they all help us keep this podcast and investigation alive. Next time on Murder Etc. South Carolina says Charles Wakefield Jr. is a murderer. Wakefield wants South Carolina to hear his story. I wasn't gonna plead guilty to nothing. I didn't do it, I wasn't gonna plead guilty to it. He told me that if I didn't plead guilty that they were gonna give me the death penalty. Then that Friday, that's when they sentenced me to death. Face to face with the man South Carolina planned to kill on the next Murder Etc.